Please turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 3, the book of Esther chapter 3. If you're using one of the blue Bibles in the seats in front of you, you can find that on page 411. We'll start by reading the first six verses. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Let's take a moment again and pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would cause this particular text of scripture to speak clearly to our hearts. Lord, we know that our need today is to see the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe in him, and to live more in accordance with his commands. And we trust that as we come to this section of your word, you will allow us to do that. So we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, which we again trust is resident within your people and is present here today, we ask you, Lord, to be at work in us. Do a great work among us today. Work powerfully your truth into us and transform us. For the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, for his glory and his kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't like conflict. I don't like it when people are angry at me. And as a general rule, I don't like arguing with people. Now, some people, you may be one of them, when they're in the middle of a conflict, they find that their minds are wonderfully clear and their tongues are free and they know exactly what to say. Not me. My mind goes blank. This didn't serve me very well when I worked as a seventh grade teacher, by the way. Some snotty 12-year-old would want to lock horns with me, and I'd just get tongue-tied. How I envied some of the older teachers who had the happy ability to freeze a kid with a look, 
pin them to their seats with one raised eyebrow, and then with effortless clarity and eloquence proceed to explain to them exactly what the score was, how such behavior would never be repeated in their classroom again. Did they make themselves clear? Yes, perfectly clear, sir. That never worked for me. I don't like conflict. Maybe you don't either. But guess what? Sometimes it doesn't matter whether you like it or not. Conflict finds you. Somebody comes at you loaded for bear and you can't avoid the confrontation. You have no choice. You must respond. And then the only question is, how will you respond? Will you give a good and honorable account of yourself? Friends, as we look into God's word this morning, we're going to discover that you and I and every single one of us is caught up in a great, colossal, mammoth conflict. In fact, there is a cosmic battle being waged, and whether or not you like it, you are a combatant in that conflict. You can't avoid it. You have no choice. And so given that reality, you need to make sure of two things. Number one, are you going to come out of this battle on the winning side? And number two, when all said and done, will you have fought well? Would you like to know how? Then you need to listen today as God's word speaks to us about these matters from Esther Now, we already read verses 1 through 6, and we saw the emergence of a conflict, a great conflict, but one that actually teaches us more and more about a greater conflict. So we see in the rise of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, we see in him a picture of the great enemy of our souls who has drawn us into this conflict So we see right off the bat the enemy raging against God's people. In verse 1, it says, After these things, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. Let's briefly recap. What are these things? Well, last week we watched as the Persian king, Ahasuerus, king of kings, ruler of the world, we saw him call his queen Vashti to come to a banquet he was holding, and to display her great beauty before his guests. We saw the king depose Vashti when she refused to come when he summoned her. We saw him decide to give Vashti's place as queen to another woman, one who would find favor in his eyes, in his sight. And we saw how Esther, more than all the beautiful young women of the empire, won the king's favor and was exalted to his to the position of queen. And who was Esther? We saw that she is the cousin and the adopted daughter of Mordecai. They are Jews of the exile and their ancestors were taken into captivity when God destroyed Jerusalem for her disobedience. Now at this point in the story, the king and the court do not yet know that she is a Jew. They don't know that Esther's a Jew. Mordecai has instructed her not to reveal her kindred. And we also saw how Esther and Mordecai have already saved the king's life when Mordecai uncovered a plot 
to assassinate him. It's after all those things, after all these things, that Ahasuerus promotes this man, this Haman, the Agagite, promotes him above all the other officials in the kingdom. And what is that? What's the upshot? What's the import? It means that all who serve the king must bow down and pay homage to Haman as the king commands. And everyone does. Everyone does. Everyone takes their cue and they bow down whenever this man comes around. Because Haman is the top dog. Except for one. Except for one person. Because Mordecai, Mordecai will not bow down to Haman. Nor will he pay homage to Haman. Mordecai, who has saved the king's life. Mordecai, who has not yet been honored or or given any recognition for having done so. But he, he, knowing the king's command, knowing that he's to pay homage and bow down to Haman, refuses to do so. So you can imagine how that works. You're in the king's gate. That's a place of, of all sorts of court business where it's being conducted. There's bunches of people bustling around, doing all sorts of stuff. Suddenly, Haman and his entourage enter. And everyone immediately stops what they're doing, and they all turn. They all turn toward Haman and bow low as the great man passes through, all except one guy. One guy just stands there, bolt upright, while everyone else is bowing down. And you gotta think, the guy next to him, like, is whispering furiously, Are you crazy? What do you think you're doing? You've gotta bow! And Mordecai just stands there, just stands there, watching, refusing to pay homage. And this happens again and again. This is his regular deal. He won't bow to Haman. All his colleagues talk to him. They say, what's going on with you, man? Why won't you bow to Haman? And he tells them that the reason is because he's a Jew. He's a Jew. Now, when Haman finds out about this, he is enraged. It is unthinkable, intolerable, beyond all enduring that any man, let alone Mordecai, would defy him in this way. He will have blood for this. And now the obvious course of action for Haman would be to have Mordecai arrested and executed. I'm sure Haman could have pulled it off. But that's not enough. That's not enough. For Haman, it is far too small a thing that he would just destroy Mordecai. He decides that this outrage to his pride deserves a much more comprehensive comprehensive vengeance. He must wipe out Mordecai's entire people. Now, we all understand that we live in a world where people often respond disproportionately when they're mad. We see it in world leaders. We see it on social media. Sheesh, we even see it in the RGC nursery, right? You take my toy, I'm going to slug you. But you need to understand that there's actually something much more going on in this conflict between Haman and Mordecai. There's a story that's much bigger than a spat between these two individual men. They're actually representatives of a fierce an ancient war. 
And I need to take a few minutes to give you the broader history. Because Haman and Mordecai don't just represent themselves as individuals. They represent two sides of a great and bitter conflict. See, Haman is an Agagite. An Agagite. A descendant of Agag. And Mordecai, we learn from chapter 2, is a Benjamite. A descendant of a man named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. What does that mean? That means that he's from the family of King Saul. So Mordecai is descended from the family of King Saul, and Haman is descended from Agag. You're like, who's Agag? Well, this is all important because of something that happened over 500 years earlier, which is recorded in 1 Samuel 15. We're not going to turn there. I'm just going to tell you the story. The Lord commanded Saul, who was Israel's first king, to go to war against a people called the Amalekites and to totally destroy them because they were under God's curse. And at that time, the king of Amalek was named Agag, from whom we get Haman the Agagite, a descendant of this same Agag. So Saul and the Israelites, at God's command, fought against the Amalekites and defeated them. But then Saul refused the order of the Lord. He disobeyed the Lord. He did not totally destroy the enemy as God had told him to. He left King Agag alive. And so in this encounter, Saul failed. He failed to to deal decisively with the enemies of God. And as a result, he lost the kingdom. The Lord withdrew his favor, withdrew his spirit from Saul... And eventually gave it to David. And David and his dynasty took the kingdom. And now Agag's descendant, Haman, has survived to make war against God's people once again. So, at one level, Haman and Mordecai represent Agag and Saul. They're predecessors. But the conflict goes even farther back because we need to understand why were the Amalekites under God's curse in the first place. Well, it's because of what happened in Exodus 17. You don't need to turn there. I'll tell you the story. The Lord had just delivered, just delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea. Just weeks before this, he was leading them to Mount Sinai where he would make his covenant with them. And what what happens? The Amalekites come out in the wilderness. The Amalekites come out and they make war against Israel. This fledgling nation. They've never known war before. They knew the conflict of Egypt, but they weren't actually fighting. The Lord was fighting for them. Now, Amalek comes out and wages war against them. And therefore, Amalek has the dubious distinction of being the first nation to try and destroy God's chosen people. They're the first ones. And that actually allows them to serve as an archetype. It's a fancy word. It just means a blueprint. It means it's a pattern. The Amalekites serve as an archetype for all the people throughout history who hate the people of God. And so God decreed that he would blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. He would have war, he says, with Amalek from generation to generation. Well, now there's a new generation. And Haman, who's an Amalekite, is still raging against the new generation of God's people and threatening their destruction. So, Haman and Mordecai, Agag and Saul, Amalek and Israel. This is an old, old war. 
And yet we mustn't even stop there. We've got to go even further back. Even Amalek versus Israel is just one significant iteration of the most ancient conflict. Why am I telling you all this? You need to know your history. You need to know your history, people of God, child of God. This is your story. You need to understand that the enemies are real. You need to understand that the conflict is old. Friends, this really does go all the way back, all the way back to the beginning, when the serpent, the greatest enemy of all, lured Adam and Eve into rebellion against the Lord because he hates God, he hates the image of God, and he hates all those who bear God's image. And once Satan had struck that fatal blow and we were all plunged into sin and death and misery, the Lord responded. The Lord responded by making a promise, a wonderful promise. When everything seemed lost and hopeless, God comes, he makes a promise. And in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, God pronounced his curse against the serpent. And then he says, Funny, funny promise. It's glorious, but it's odd. He says, he promises a war. He says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. Now, why is that a good thing? Because what have Adam and Eve just done? They've switched sides. They've joined the enemy's team. They've decided to rebel against the Lord. They've allied themselves with with Satan. And so God in grace says, I'm going to to actually create enmity between you again. I'm going to actually not allow all of humanity to just ally themselves with Satan and go to destruction. I'm going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the promise is, the seed of the, of the woman will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. So enmity. There's going to be an, an ongoing conflict. There it is. Despite the, man, the fact that the man and the woman have just rebelled against him, God is not going to hand them over wholesale to their enemy. And so the serpent and his seed... The serpent and his seed are going to rage against the woman and her seed for as long as the world endures. This conflict is never going to end while this age endures. But the woman's seed, the people of God, are going to resist. They're going to resist on behalf of the Lord. And so the war will be long and bitter, but God promises that it's the woman's seed who's going to end up victorious. And the serpent's head will be crushed, even though he will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman in the process. So God promises that his people will ultimately prevail. The people of God will prevail. Okay, trace it one more time. Mordecai and Haman. They're just the latest iteration of that most ancient conflict. They represent Saul and Agag, They represent Israel and Amalek. They represent the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. God's enemies constantly warring against God's people and God's people resisting. And that, I actually believe, is the best way to understand why Mordecai won't bow to Haman. 
Why won't Mordecai bow to Haman? I don't think that necessarily, intrinsically, it was a question of worship, like that he was supposed to. It was, I think it was, just, it was just the etiquette due to one in authority. And ordinarily, that's perfectly fine. But I think the reason why Mordecai won't bow to Haman is he recognizes who Haman is. He's a son of Agag. He's an Amalekite. He's a seed of the serpent. He's the enemy of God and of God's people. And he cannot, he must not bow down before such a man. Now Haman's response proves the point. When he gets gets snubbed in this way, he rages against the people of God. He plans to exterminate them all and blot them out. Let's look at the details of his plot, starting in verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, Ah, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Hagag, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. All right, so Haman casts poor, casts lots, throws the dice. Haman wants to make sure as he prepares his wicked plan, he wants to make sure that the heavens will give him success. So he arranges for some diviners, some fortune tellers, to cast lots to make sure that he has the right day chosen for the Jews to be exterminated. He wants that to be his lucky day. Right, so this is Nisan. This is the first month, which in our, which in our calendar is somewhere around March and April. This is the first month of the year. And they roll the dice. They roll it 12 times. Is the first month the right month? No. Roll again. Is the second month the right month? No. Third month the right month. Goes all the way through the calendar. Goes all the way to the 12th month. The lot selects Adar. The very end of the year, February and March, to be the lucky day. There's a whole year that's going to transpire between the time that this edict goes out and the day of the Jews' extermination. And then, once he's established what the lucky day is, Haman goes to the king with this malicious and deceitful, slanderous accusation. He doesn't mention who they are. He doesn't, never, never, never defines what this people group is. He never says, I want to kill all the Jews. He just says, there's these guys. There's this family. There's these people. And they... They have their own laws, King. Well, that's true, isn't it? That's true. But what's not true is what he goes on to say. He says that they do not respect or obey the king's laws. Well, that's not, that's not the case. That's not the case there. 
they're by and large living under the authority of the Persian rulers, except in the case of, of Daniel or something, when, when you're, you're supposed to go bow down to some 90-foot statue or something. Yeah, they're not going to obey that law. But in general, they're, they're perfectly happy to obey the laws of, of the people. This is a slander. And he offers the king an incentive. He says, I'll give you 10,000 talents, king. Well, that's a whole lot. That's a whole lot. We actually know from history that the king had just, had just finished not too long ago, coming back from the war with Greece and lost. So the empire was a little short on cash. I don't know if that had anything to do with the king agreeing to this, but, but uh, Haman offers this incentive and the king accepts it. Presumably this is going to be plunder taken from the Jews. So the king agrees. And he gives Haman the authority to issue a decree in his name, sealed with his signet ring, to wipe out this certain people. Let's read the decree, in, starting in verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the people, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province, Remember, there were 127 of them. In every province, by proclamation to all the peoples, to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So to every corner of this great empire, This decree, this edict goes out that all Jews, young, old, men, women, children, are to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. This is the final solution 2,000 years before the final solution. Destroyed, killed, and annihilated on the 13th day of the 12th month, nearly a year from now. Now, something you need to recognize is when the decree goes out. Look again at verse 12. The king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. You know what day that is? That's the day before Passover. The Jews get the news that their doom has been decreed. The day before Passover. The day before they sit down to celebrate God's deliverance of them. From Egypt. And so for Mordecai and for all the rest of the Jews in Susa, this, this most happy day, this most joyous day, Passover, their day of celebration is turned to lamentation and grief and mourning and confusion. Because they're threatened with extermination. There's an irrevocable decree that's come out that they're going to be dead within 12 months. And here's the great question. 
Here's the great, great question that they face. See, Passover celebrates how God delivered them out of Egypt to be his own covenant people, a people for his own possession so that they might obey him and love him and serve him and glorify him as his people. And that he might love them and protect them and deliver them as their God. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's the covenant. That's what Passover celebrates. But they're in Persia. They're they're not in Israel. Mordecai's not in Israel. Esther's not in Israel. They're in exile precisely because they broke the covenant. They nullified it. They eviscerated it through their wickedness and their idolatry and their refusal to submit to the lordship of, of their God. They've been unfaithful to God in every possible way. And as a result, God, God cast them out. He spit them out of the land. The land vomited them out. And they went off into exile. And that's why they're in Persia right now. Because they broke the covenant. And so now they're threatened with death. Now they're threatened with extermination. They have to be wondering, will God still deliver us the way he did so long ago when he brought us out of the land of Egypt? Is the covenant still any good? When, when we violated it so horribly, is the covenant still in play? Or is this time, is God going to abandon us to the hatred of our enemies? And they sit down to Passover. And they have to think. They have to reason with themselves. What's going on? What's going on? Is God really going to abandon us? But golly gee, we deserve it. We deserve it. What's he going to do with us? Now next week we're going to see how one Jew, at least, answers those questions. Mordecai, at the very least, is going to believe that all God's promises are still in play, that they're still good, and that the Lord is going to provide another great deliverance for his people. But we stop the story here at the end of chapter 3, and the situation is really, really grim. And the enemy who hates them has placed them under the sentence of death. And the outcome's in death. Friends, the conflict is real. The conflict is real. They were under the imminent threat of death. The conflict is fierce. And Satan, who stands behind Haman, is a deadly enemy. And even today, he will never stop raging against the woman's seed. He did it back then. He's still doing it today. Now, I'm going to give you a spoiler. Haman's plan is not going to work in case you were wondering. Haman's plan is going to come to nothing. But they don't know that yet. All they know is that they're in grave danger. And even after, even after Satan's plan carried out through Haman, after that was thwarted, Satan didn't didn't give up. He kept trying. He keeps trying today because he wants at all costs to destroy the seed of the woman. At all costs, he wants to destroy the seed of the woman. And ultimately, he wants to destroy the seed of the woman, his ultimate enemy, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's Jesus that the devil hates the most. And Jesus is the seed of the woman. See, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. About 400 years after this event. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born to redeem his people. And when Jesus appeared on the scene and came down from heaven as a man, then all the devil's rage was against him right from the first, hurled at him again and again. What did he do right at the beginning? Satan sought to devour Jesus at his birth using wicked King Herod. He tried to murder him before Jesus' ministry could even begin. But guess what? The plot failed. So he tried again. More desperate this time. Jesus was come to manhood now. Newly commissioned. Anointed by the Holy Spirit. With the Father's seal of approval on him. This is my beloved son. He's about to embark on his public ministry. Dangerous time for the devil. And so into the wilderness the devil goes. To take him down. If he can. And he whispers to Jesus. If. If. You're the son of God. And why should you suffer? Why should you suffer? Why should you do things such a hard way? Such a hard way. There's an easier way. And his intent is that he's going to divert Jesus from his mission. And so he offers Jesus everything. He offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world. But what does he demand in response? Like Haman before him, the enemy demands, bow down down before me. And Jesus, like Mordecai before him, recognizes his enemy and refuses. And refuses, absolutely. He will not bow down, nor will he do homage. He will worship the Lord his God, and him only will he serve. And the devil, having been thwarted once again, says, leaves him for an opportunity. And so, having been unable to tempt or to divert Jesus, the enemy casts his last dice. Because if he can't turn away Jesus from the cross, perhaps he can defeat him through the cross. And so he plots the death of the woman's seed, working through his own seed, working through Judas, working through the Jewish rulers. Remember what Jesus says? You're of your father, the devil. These are the devil's seed, the serpent's seed. Judas, the Jewish Jewish rulers, Pilate, because death is the devil's great weapon. If he can get Jesus to be subjected to death, he just might still win. And so Jesus is nailed to the cruel cross and hung, suspended to die amidst the taunts of his enemies. Again, the old cry, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. One last chance, Jesus. But Jesus does not come down. Jesus doesn't come down. He refuses. He refuses the devil and all of his schemes and submits willingly to death. He lays down his life. No one takes it from him. He lays it down of his own accord, he says in John 10. But the serpent at last has succeeded in bruising the woman's seed. And he hopes, I think, that he will still come out as the victor. But he never will. He never will. 
He never will because three days later, Jesus rises up from the grave and that puts an end of all Satan's hopes and dreams and schemes. Yes, Jesus' heel was bruised, but the wound wasn't fatal. And he steps out of the grave and his foot that still shows those wounds lands squarely, squash on the serpent's head and crushes it. And all his plots are turned to ash. But even then, Even after he's suffered the ultimate defeat, the enemy does not stop the war. He still prosecutes it. He knows he cannot win. He knows now he cannot win. But he still rages. See, Jesus has escaped him. He can do no more against Jesus directly. Jesus has been caught up to God and to his throne, to use Revelation 12 language. But there's still the others. There's still the rest of the woman's seed. There's still Jesus' people. There's still you and me. And even in his death throes, Satan remains the cold and ruthless enemy. And Revelation 12 says now he's turned his attention, turned his sights on us. Then the dragon, that's the serpent of old, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He failed to defeat Jesus. Now he wages war against the rest of Jesus' people. That's right about where you and I come in. Now how shall we make use of this truth, of these truths, for the good of our own souls? Well, first off, we just need to recognize the facts on the ground. Recognize that there is a war going on and that you're in it. There is a war and you are in it. And there's no neutral parties in this conflict. You can't choose to be Switzerland. No neutral parties in this conflict. You're either one type of seed or the other. You're either the seed of the woman Or you're the seed of the serpent. So if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, first off I want to make this appeal to you, that you need need to pick the right side in this battle. Some of you who are here still stand opposed to God. Some of you here despise, sneer, roll your eyes, are annoyed, even angered by Christians or by the things of Christ. When you do that, you're giving evidence that you stand with the enemy. The enemy who hates you. The enemy who's using you. You stand with him. But your opposition, your opposition to Christ will be brought to nothing just as surely as Haman's fury was brought to nothing. You cannot win. Jesus has already defeated the one whom you serve. We're just waiting the mop-up operation. Some of you think you're indifferent to God. Some of you are trying as hard as you can to be 
Jesus has not left you that option. He did not intend to leave you that option. You must decide. Will you worship and serve and follow God's Son, who suffered death at the hands of wicked men like you, but who now has been raised and glorified? God is calling you to take action. Paul said to the Athenians, God commands all people everywhere to repent. What is God's command to you? It's to repent. God's command to you and to all people everywhere is to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day. There is a day fixed in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. A day is fixed. Your call is to repent against the coming of that day. He commands you to turn from your sins and to seek salvation in the one whom he has raised up and chosen to be the deliverer. Because as as Peter says to the Jewish rulers, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected, like you are rejecting him right now. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected. Do you think Jesus is really worried about your opposition against him? Do you think he's concerned that you stand opposed to him? That doesn't bother him. It doesn't bother him. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected, which has become the cornerstone. It doesn't bother him, but his hands are still extended in mercy toward you. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So my unbelieving friend, you're on the wrong side of the war. But you can change your allegiance today, as many of us in this room once did. You can change your allegiance. You can reject your hateful master, the one who hates God, the one who hates his son, the one who hates his people, the one who hates you and is trying to take you down. You can reject your hateful master, the serpent, and you can come to Jesus' feet and bow before him and stop being his enemy and sue for pardon and instead become one of his people. Instead of his enemy, you can be one of his people through faith and repentance. That's his offer to you. It is a limited time offer. Will you consider it? Will you consider it before the day comes which God has fixed by which you will be judged in righteousness? Will you take his offer of pardon today? Even right now? For those of us who are Jesus' people, who are the seed of the woman, who are now fighting And looking for the final victory. Let's consider. Let's consider for our sake. How we might acquit ourselves well in the battle. How can we be good foot soldiers in the battle of the seeds? Well we just heard James's exhortation a couple weeks ago. What did he say? Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Boy there's a lot of hope in that isn't there? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Friends, we have to fight. We have to gird up our loins and fight. You don't like conflict? Neither do I. 
we got to get over that. we got to get over that and accept the reality that the devil has come against you to make war, and he doesn't care that you'd rather he didn't. So how do we resist him? How do we resist him? How do we resist his temptations? Well, let's, let's understand what the temptations are. I think, number one, we're, t- we're tempted to pretend that it's peacetime. We don't want to think that it's wartime, so we pretend that it's peacetime. Now, what if? What if on February 24th of this year, when Russia started rolling tanks across the border, what if Ukraine had just ignored it? What if the Ukrainian people had decided that they deserved a break today? And they were going to make sure that they got caught up on all their leisure time activities. How would that have gone? Swift and absolute would have been the defeat. See, brothers and sisters, we mustn't get confused. We can't forget what the hour is. It's the last hour, to be sure. Jesus' return and the final defeat of our enemy could come at any moment. But the dawn has not broken yet, and we're still under attack. And we can't afford to orient our lives around an illusion of peace, an illusion of security, an illusion that it's time to play. There are eternal souls to be one that hang in the balance, yours included. There's kingdom territory to be taken. So we have to realize that it's a time for war, not a time for peace. The devil must be resisted. His attacks are fierce. He gets at us all kinds of ways, seeking to divert us, seeking to make us unfaithful, seeking to get us to drop our weapons. We mustn't. Another temptation is that we were tempted to be surprised by opposition. Opposition arises because of the word and it takes us off guard. We just don't think that that's the way it ought to be. Not in America, at least. So when opposition arises because we're living faithfully and proclaiming Jesus faithfully, we're surprised. And when we're surprised, it, we're caught off guard. Our expectations don't, it doesn't, doesn't match with our expectations And then it's very easy for us to bench ourselves because we don't like it and we don't expect it. But Peter in his epistle says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you, as if it were something odd. Expect it. Expect that if you're going to live for Jesus, and especially if you're going to be faithful to proclaim Jesus, you will be opposed. I will be opposed. If we speak the message, which is the word of life, and yet contains in it the message that we're sinners, that we need to repent, that message is not popular. The world will never accept it, never embrace it. Individual people will. The world as a whole will not. So do not be surprised when fiery trial comes as a result of faithfulness to the word. John says the same thing. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Cain slew his brother. Why did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. 
Jesus says the same thing. The world hates me because I testify against it that its deeds are evil. So as we speak the word that inevitably conflicts with people's sense that they're okay, they won't like it. They'll hate us, in fact. Do not be surprised that the world hates you. Obviously, we're tempted to fear. We're tempted to fear and to pessimism. A pessimism that says, when things get tough, that means all hope is lost. We might as well throw in the towel. Now, that's not true. That's not true. No, Jesus is victorious. Jesus is victorious. And that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter if we're at a place of safety, relative safety, as we are right now. It doesn't matter if we're in the middle of a Saudi Arabian jail. The reality is Jesus is still victorious, and the devil is still on the run, and the promise is sure, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So it does not matter what you think of the news. It does not matter what you think of the cultural context or the moment or how things are going in Vermont. Jesus is on the throne. Satan is on the run. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Jesus is building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I remember in college we were talking about that passage. It's like, gates are not an offensive weapon, are they? Gates are a defensive weapon. So when it says that the gates of hell will not prevail against us, who's on the offensive, who's on the defensive? You see Satan coming out swinging a pair of gates? You know, the gates of hell aren't going to prevail. No, Satan's in the stronghold. We're coming against him. Jesus wants us to be optimists. Opportunistic optimists. He wants us to fight against our sin courageously. So if you're tempted to think, ah, my sin's too strong, I can't, I can't, I can't fight, I might as well give in. That's not the attitude he wants you to have. No, sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. The devil doesn't own you anymore if you're in Christ. You don't have to do what he tells you to do. There are people out there. There are people around the world. And some people there are in here who right now are on their way to hell. We have the message that can rescue them and the authority of Jesus to proclaim that message. Let us venture. Let us venture. Let us be bold individually in little groups of twos and threes, scheming, trying to figure out how are we going to connect with that person or how are we going to connect with that person to see if we can connect them to the life-giving message of the gospel. Let us venture. Let us be bold. Let us plant a church someday, God willing. Let us revitalize a church. Let us send our children and even ourselves as missionaries around the world. Let us advance. We're tempted to hate tempted to hate. We're we're tempted to see flesh and blood people as our enemies. And in in the era of the new covenant, that's not quite the case. It's a little different. It's a little different on this side of the cross. We do not wage war against flesh and blood, Paul says. Well, think about Paul for a minute. Think about Paul. Imagine him in Acts 9, 1, when it says, and Saul breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Was he an enemy at that moment? You bet he was. He looked a lot like Haman. 
throwing people into prison, casting his vote, that they be put to death. He's breathing threats and murder against the Lord on a mission to go to Damascus so that he can take anyone who believes in the name and throw them into prison. And yet, how are we supposed to view Paul and, and people like him? Well, what happens to Paul by the end of chapter 9? Beginning of chapter 9, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. End of chapter 9, he's reasoning in the synagogues that Jesus is the Christ. How do we look at those even who are opposing us, even those who are coming against us with hostility? We look at them with hope, knowing that even they may be converted and they may come to Jesus. So don't let's look at our enemies, even if they seem far gone, even if they're opposing Jesus and his word and his people. We never need to fear that it's impossible for the Lord to save them. We do not wage war against flesh and blood. We're tempted to give in and compromise and stop fighting. Give in to sin. Give in to apathy. Give in to a life of of leisure. Give in, embrace the world, embrace its values. No, we mustn't do that. We We must stand firm. As Ephesians says, we must take up the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand in the evil day. What's the evil day? It's now. Withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand there. I think the biggest is, is we're tempted to stop proclaiming Christ. Why does, why does the world hate us? Why does the enemy hate us? Because we're Jesus's. Because we have his words in our mouths. The devil would love us to just shut up. And I think, frankly, for the most part, he'd, he'd leave us alone. Just keep your mouth shut, you little Christians at RGC. I'll even let you be for the most part. Just don't, whatever you do, go on the offensive. Play it safe. Keep your mouth shut. And I just won't bother you too much. I won't give you much of a thought because you're not a threat to me. No, we must resist that temptation too. We've got to keep proclaiming. We've got to keep being unashamed of the gospel. Yes, we will have tribulation. Jesus promised it. He says in Revelation, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Is it conceivable that any of us would, would be required and called upon to be faithful unto death? I don't know. But what do I know? It's that Jesus says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So it, it works out okay for us. When the devil rages against the church... This is the testimony of heaven. This is the thing that can steal our souls and cause us to resist. When the devil rages against the church, the testimony of heaven is they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even to death. The enemy is raging, but his plans will come to nothing. Are you on the right side of the war? Will you acquit yourself well? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much 
that you did put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, that we weren't all just given over to his service, to his miserable service forever and ever. Lord, you made a way by which the seed of the woman would come in the fullness of time and he would redeem those who were under the curse. We thank you that those of us who have taken refuge in him now have pardon from you, now are enlisted in his service. Lord, may we do it well. And for my unbelieving friends, Lord, I pray that they would recognize the futility of their opposition and come and sue for peace with Jesus. May they lay down their arms. May they know his salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.